0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you stand with me? We're going to turn to Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, the story of Christ entering Jerusalem. This is the Word of God. When they had approached Jerusalem, and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. But Father, I am speaking and I pray that my words may not come as mere human words, but that by the work of your Holy Spirit, they may have power and come with conviction, both out of me and into us, Father, with conviction. Please, Father, we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're in the midst of a series of passages that are moving us inexorably to the cross and to the resurrection. And uh, it's closer and closer, and, and now we're in the week of patient. We're in the last week of Jesus' death. He's been on his way to Jerusalem for a number of a number of weeks he's traveled through Samaritan territory he's gone to the other side of the Jordan he's come back he's gone to Bethany and now he leaves Bethany in the morning and he he goes to Bethpage and and there at Bethpage he begins what we've read in this passage he begins his entry into Jerusalem and we're told that he began in Bethany in another gospel but he approaches Jerusalem and and there at Bethpage, which is kind of across the Kidron Valley, there's a valley. I don't know how to describe it now. I've seen it. Um, it's not a real deep or great valley. Maybe to walk down and up, it's a half mile, three quarters of a mile from the Mount of Olives down and up. And uh, and Jesus is following a road. He's going from Bethpage to the city gates and into the city of Jerusalem. Probably a distance of a mile, um, maybe depending on when the ceremony, or not the ceremony, but the triumphal procession began. Um, if it began before Peth, Page, maybe two miles. If it went into Jerusalem, maybe two and a half. We don't know. But this is what's going on. Jesus is going into Jerusalem. He is descending to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives down through the Kidron. And into the city. And I'm fascinated by this passage. I'm also. Um, I have not been looking forward to preaching on it. Because I find this kind of a confusing and disturbing passage. Um, in ways that probably most of us do. Because we have to hold intention in our minds as we look at this passage. The reality that this is the way the week begins. And we know how the week begins. With Jesus going up another hill. And. Reconciling those two truths in my mind has always been incredibly difficult because this is a, a triumphal procession. It is a, it is a mass adoration of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's an incredible outpouring of worship and adulation orchestrated by God, yes. Uh, it's very clear that God wants this but it is nonetheless freely given by men. And uh, and so we have a kind of a quandary. Uh, on the one hand, this. On the other hand, that. You know what I mean by that, you know. At the end of the week. So Jesus... Recognizing the weight of the occasion, understanding that scripture is tied to this event, sends two of his disciples to get for him in the village of Bethpage a donkey and a colt, in other words, a female donkey and her colt, and to untie them and bring them to him. And he says, And if anyone opposes you, just tell them the Lord has need. Not even Jesus, just say, The Lord has need and immediately that person will say fine fine which whether the question is raised or not we're not told but immediately they return with the cold and the foal and the mother they return exactly what jesus said exactly what Zechariah's prophecy that's quoted here in verse five say to the daughter of zion behold your king is coming to you the king is coming gentle Mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden, all right? Now, he's coming and he's gentle. He's mounted on a donkey. I've heard sermons that have said that a donkey was a regal beast. Any of you ever seen a donkey? No, they're they're not regal beasts, you know? People have said, oh, this is really a kingly attribute. Well, it is true that David at one point sends his son Solomon mounted on his mule or donkey. I can't remember which it is into the city to receive the worship of the people because he's crowned Solomon king because Solomon's brother has tried to pull an end run around and get himself crowned. And so David hears of it from Nathan and Bathsheba. He says, get my donkey. Put Solomon on it. Bring him into the city. But this is not a scene of worldly glory in one sense. It's a scene of worldly glory, but in, in, in every... Respect it turns the world's glory on end. I'll, I'll speak about that in a moment. Let's just be clear that the the passage itself recognizes that this is not a scene that is that's consistent, that is in concord with how we think of the glory of a king. He is a king. Say to the daughter of Zion, say to the the people of Jerusalem, say to Jerusalem, to Zion, the city of God. Behold, your king is coming to you, but he's gentle. And he's mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, all right? And that's a step down. It's the full of a donkey. He's mounted on a little colt, the full of a beast of burden. And so it's, it's, it's undeniable that this is humble, even as it's glorious. The passage itself makes it clear that there is a certain inconsistency the daughter of Zion, your king is coming. Gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. So we're on our way from Bethany through Bethpage into Jerusalem. Bethany was the setting out point. Bethany was the home of Mary and Martha, Jesus' friends. It was the home of Lazarus. Only a few days prior to this, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. The origin of this crowd, we're told in John, stems from that great act of glory, that great sign Jesus had done. The raising of John from the dead provokes the worship of the Lord who did it. People are going. And so they follow him, and there is a vast crowd that is surrounding him, all the way from Bethany to Bethpage, and then from Bethpage into Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, people know and have heard, and others haven't. It's a large city. We don't know how large, maybe a 100 Maybe 200,000, maybe the size, at largest of Fort Wayne proper, not its, not its environs, maybe smaller than that, you know, like, um, like Peoria, Illinois, or Rockford, I'm trying to speak of things, you know, 100 to 200,000, some people suggest less than 100, some people, Tacitus, the Roman historian says, oh, 600,000 Jews were killed when we, when we conquered Jerusalem. In 70 A.D. 67. And, uh, but that's not scripture. And so it seems likely that it was hundred to 200,000 and not much more. And so Jesus is coming down to his city. And this city knows him. Knows about him. He's been there before. They're aware of him. And he's coming on a donkey. Gentle. Mounted on the resplendent deed of a, of a donkey. Who is it? My mind, yeah. Who is it? Wasn't it uh, the guy who tilted at windmills? What's his name? Don Quixote. Don Quixote, thank you. And he had a, a, a wonderful steed. Wasn't it a donkey? Wasn't he on a donkey? And what was his donkey's name? Something like Garibaldi. You know, it it was part of the ludicrousness of Don Quixote that he went out to tilt at windmills seated on a donkey. Well, here is the the thing that that is based in. This is a king seated on a donkey coming into his capital city. Now, we call this event the triumphal entry, don't we? You've heard it referred to as the triumphal entry. It's known universally around the world as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The term triumphal entry is not found in Scripture. It's in none of the Gospels. We know it as that because that is what it was. It was a a triumphal entry, a conquering king coming in triumph to his capital. That was the fact of it, and this is how we know it today, because it was Christ's triumph, his triumphal entry, a triumph. Triumphal entries have existed as long as history has been recorded. They took place well before Rome. They take place today. David had Solomon crowned as king. And when he sent him into Jerusalem riding on his royal donkey, and that is the the symbolism here. If there's any symbolism, it's that David just grabbed the closest beast he could find, his royal donkey, said, take my donkey, it's here. And and going to Jerusalem, and Jesus is coming in, as Solomon did, on a donkey. (laughs) David had done it a thousand years before. And as Solomon went into the city, we read, the rejoicing of the people was so great that the earth shook. The earth was shaking with the rejoicing. And Adonijah and all the rebels who were having a party and saying, Adonijah is king, the the son who had claimed the throne without his father's permission, hears the rejoicing, feels the ground shaking. And they're saying, what is this? What is this? They hear it. They feel it. And they're scared because they say, something's going on in the city. What's going on in the city? It was that great. That much rejoicing, that great of power, that great a triumph when Solomon came into the city. So it's happened before this, and it happens still today. Today, uh, I don't know if we've had one recently, but in the last century, there were a number of, of parades in New York City, known as ticker tape parades, taking confetti, taking the old ticker tapes from the news machines and the, the Wall Street quotations from the the Dow Jones, the, the, the stock prices, taking all the tape from the financial district and lower Broadway, throwing it out the window to acclaim certain people as they made their triumph, as they had their triumph through the city. So at the end of World War II, there's a triumph uh, ticker tape parade for Admiral Nimitz and for General, General Eisenhower. They say the two largest... Ticker tape parades were that of, of General Douglas MacArthur, who had just an enormous ticker tape parade when he was relieved by President Truman from command of the forces in Korea. He came back in the, and New York fell at his feet. And the other one was for someone else who had a kind of triumph facing death and coming through it, and that was John Glenn. They say John Glenn and Douglas MacArthur had the two greatest, so we know this kind of triumph. Uh, it, we've seen it in micro we've seen it in macro we've seen it in our own you know the high school football team comes back after winning the state championship the town comes out and greets them it's a triumph in 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 the macro in the little thing we've seen it or, or micro we've seen it in big ways too we know this pattern now at this time in this historical moment even to our day uh, the fest- the best known and most prominent triumphal entries were those that were accorded by and held in the city of Rome. They were known as triumphs, and in the time of the Roman Republic, before the monarchy and the uh, that was instituted by Julius Caesar, they were granted only by the by the Senate. The Senate of Rome was the place that decreed a triumph. It was reserved for a general who achieved great victories. Some have said that there had to be at least 5,000 enemies killed. Uh, That was written at the time, but we're not certain that every triumph actually required that, that there were these specified numbers and so forth. But at least at one point, a Roman historian said you had to kill 5,000. It was Rome's highest honor. It was the Nobel Prize, the ticker tape parade of the world, because Rome was capital of the world. And so, as Jesus comes down into the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, Zion, the city of the great king, naturally to everyone, because it is a Roman vassal state and because everyone knows Rome, because Herods grew up with the Caesars and it was a thoroughly Romanized world, everyone is going to think of a Roman triumph, the greatest victory, the greatest uh, honor that Rome could give to a native son. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, into his capital city in the manner of a great emperor or a great general entering Rome. Century before this, Pompey, maybe the greatest general of Rome's history, one of the great ones, Pompey had three three triumphs, was honored with three triumphs in his lifetime. The second of them was for his actually conquering Jerusalem. In the, in the Jewish wars, he conquered Jerusalem and came back and in Rome was given a triumph. So this city itself has been vanquished and has come under Roman rule and that vanquishing by Pompey about 90 to 100 years before Christ's century was the subject of a Roman triumph. Now a, a Roman triumph is... <laughs> Undeniably, the pattern that's followed by this triumph of Christ. Is is Roman triumph the, the, the founding of this tradition? No, the tradition has been here before Rome, was there before Rome, and it will be here long after Rome. But there are certain elements of a Roman triumph that are clearly seen in this triumph of Jesus, the triumphal entry. And yet... As we consider the question of why is it that the crowd turns on Jesus, what makes this event to go 180 degrees the other way at the end of the week? So that the crowds, and we have to believe that it's the case, the crowds that are calling out in acclamation of Jesus at the end of the week, there are some, at least some, it says the whole city was acclaiming it when he came in. At the end of the week, it says all the Jews were saying, give us Barabbas, and they're calling for a murderer. So I want to speak to you about this process, and I want to speak to you in light of your pursuit of glory, because no man has ever been born who's not seeking glory. You are a seeker of glory. If you don't seek glory, you're not sentient. You're a rock. You want glory, I want glory, and the question is, how do we pursue it? How do we achieve it? God says that those who by their great faith pursue the glory of of heaven will be blessed by him. Pursuit of glory is right and good and necessary. But there is a vast divide between the glory of Rome and the glory of Christ. And in that divide, in that gap between the glory of of Christ and the glory of the Roman emperor lies the crisis of your life, the crux of your existence, right there. And so this is a passage which speaks to you about about the glory you seek, the glory you pursue, the life you lead, the goals you have set. And whether you will be recognized by God with glory or cast out. Roman triumphs, which this entry of Christ is not an imitation of, but reflects in certain ways. Roman triumphs are one thing. Christ is similar. And yet, though the entry of Jesus reflects many of the elements of a Roman triumph, it is the gutting of it. It is the gutting of it. It absolutely tears it apart. And this is the reality. If we follow Christ, there will be triumphs, there will be glories, there is the pursuit of glory. But it will gut you. It will tear apart every standard of glory that you've been taught by the world. And it will recreate it in a way that honors God. And that's the reason that the people turn on Jesus. Oh, they see the glory. They see the power. They see the cost. And they say, no, thank you. We want nothing to do with it. In the space of a week, 180 degrees, they reject it. A triumph was a stylized ceremony in Rome. Had a number of parts. Parts. It began with the conquering general coming with his armies after a great victory and approaching the Senate through generally intermediaries, not himself, because he would be with his army on the other side of the Tiber, the river that runs into Rome. He was not allowed to go in with his armies and the armies would not be armed. General would approach the Senate and request a triumph, which the Senate had to pay for. if the senate agreed and it was always a matter of debate because they would be recognizing a man who might be their their rival for power if the senate agreed the general would wait for the day that was decreed for his triumph across the tiber with his armies and then that morning he would cross the tiber and go into the city once in rome proper the procession began at dawn The hero, the conquering general, placed in a war chariot drawn by four majestic war horses. Battle-hardened steeds. It would begin at the campus Martius, the field of Mars. Begin well before daybreak. The general, at times, we are told, don't know if it was always the case, would have his face painted red the color of Jupiter. A reminder to the people, a suggestion of deity in this man who had such triumph. And he would begin the two and a half mile journey. From Campus Martius to the Capitoline Hill and at the top of which was the Temple of Jupiter. Behind the general as he rode in his chariot with the four horses pulling it was usually, we don't know if it was always the case, but a slave put there by the Senate who would whisper in the, in the ear of the, of the general as he was making his way slowly through the streets, a memento mori, this is where we get the word, A remembrance of his mortality. The slave would whisper to the general, you too shall die. You too shall die so that he would not be tempted to try and take this day and become a dictator on the basis of it and run it day after day. You too shall die. The slave was there to provide that memento mori. You will die. The procession was often miles in length. At the beginning of the procession came the captives walking in chains. Those captured in the war. And they were destined to either for execution or for slavery. Following the captives, their weapons, the loot from the war, sometimes something like floats, great artistic depictions of the victory. Then, after that tableau, those displays, on foot, beneath the conquering general, Rome's senators and magistrates. And they would be walking on foot and then behind them, between them and the general, the, the chief officers of the general wearing laurel wreaths, still walking, but wearing laurel wreaths and, and clothed in their war ropes. Following the great men of Rome came the general in a four-horse chariot. In the midst of the procession somewhere there would be two perfect white oxen which would be led to be sacrificed to Jupiter. Those oxen had garlands on them and their horns were gilded, gold placed on their, on their horns. All this was accompanied by music, applause. The soldiers who were at the, at the end of the procession, the general soldiers followed him, were given freedom to sing and say whatever they wanted. They were usually singing, someone, sometimes ribald uh, uh, things, mocking their general but loving him still. Clouds of incense, there was the strewing of flowers on the road ahead of the general. When the procession reached the foot of the Capitoline Hill, at the top of which was the Temple of Jupiter, they would stop and it would wait. It would wait for a cry to arise from the forum, the Roman forum, which exists today down below. The cry which would indicate that the captured Enemy general, if there was a captured general, it would be an officer, that he had been taken into the forum and executed. And the crowd would cry at the execution, and then it was appropriate to march up the Capitoline Hill to the Temple of Jupiter. And the, the oxen would be offered. And the day would end with drunken feasts. Gifts of money to the soldiers of the army with the whole city rejoicing. Now, in every way, Jesus turns this ceremony, even as he follows it, turns it on its head. He follows its conventions. He guts it. Glory is glory. Glory is glory. We all know glory. The glory of God is not the glory of Rome. Glory is glory. But the glory that God calls you to pursue is not the glory that you can gain by your feats of power in this world. And you must reconcile yourself to that if you're going to know the glory of Jesus Christ. In every way, Jesus turns this ceremony on its head, follows its conventions, reverses its meaning. He is a king. He is a God. He doesn't need his face painted red. Yet he doesn't claim deity by painting his face. He rides a donkey. Jesus doesn't stand outside with his army saying, give me a triumph. His father has decreed it it is the will of God not the begging of man or the demanding or the threats of man or the general with his army saying give me my triumph Jesus says they'll do it they'll do it not a war horse not a chariot not four war horses a donkey and her full and the captives the captives of Rome led to execution or slavery But Jesus, we're told in the word of God, comes and he makes captivity his captive. He comes to set the captives free and to take captivity itself and make it his captive. You have ascended on high, David writes. You have led captive your captives. You have led captivity captive, literally. You have received gifts among men. We look at Jesus marching into Jerusalem to his victory and we see the great enemy of our souls, Satan, king of this world, being cast down. The king of death is taken captive. This triumphal march has no human captives. Jesus is a victor who sets his prisoners free, who sets all captives free, who frees us from the captivity of death, and who forgives his enemies, and who loves his foes. So we have here the untriumph of triumphal entries. Everything the Roman triumph was not, and nothing that the Roman triumph was in its glories and cruelty and pride, yeah, flowers strewn on the road, yeah. A sacrifice that ends the ceremony. Yes. Yes, clothing thrown in the path and adoring crowds, shouting children, the distribution of wealth. But Jesus does this so much more richly and so much more vastly and to so many more people. Not just the worthy people, not just the upright people of Rome, to the world, to everyone. As he makes his triumphal entry, he's setting you free. He's giving you gifts. You must worship him. You must, you must guard your heart against the same effects that take place during this week as the crowd looks at Jesus because you will be tempted to turn on him and to say no, not that glory. No ceremonial killing of foes, no selling into slavery, no pretense of deity, God himself. Why are they following him? Well John tells us a large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only but they might also see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead but the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him on account of Lazarus many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day large crowd right after Lazarus, the next day the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now I want to say a few things in conclusion about this triumph. The glory of God comes in giving life, not taking life. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and the wellspring is of honor. But Jesus rejects the killing. When his disciples asked, should we call down fire from heaven on this Samaritan village that wouldn't welcome him on his way to Jerusalem? Should we call down fire? Jesus, would you like us to kill them all by heaven's fire? He said, you don't know what, what your master is of what manner you are. He says, the, that's satanic. Satan kills. Jesus came to give life. Jesus came to give life. And, and yet, there are two things about the glory of the, of the world that I'm, I don't have the time to go into more, but I want to say two things. The glory of the world is predicated on two things. Great money and great killing. Great killing. We honor those who kill. We respect them. We act as though killing is a cool thing and as though the general who's killed his thousands and his tens of thousands is worthy of honor. This is not God. God said to David, You are a man of blood. You may not make my temple. Because you have been a man who shed blood. We don't take that seriously. The glory of our nation, the glory of the world, is on the strong man, the fighting man, the man who can bend others by his violence to his will. Jesus comes gently. Gently, not putting to death. Peter takes his sword and strikes off the high priest, goes for his neck, I'm sure, but strikes off his ear. Not a very accomplished swordsman later in this week. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Do you not know that you live by the sword will die by the sword? The glory of the world that goes to the man who kills is not the glory of Christ christ loves children christ is feted and celebrated by children not soldiers the idea that we are great because we can bend people to our will and there's an implicit threat in our presence is not godly and we live in a nation of incredible bloodshed we're killers 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 Killers. We it's cool to kill. Well, it is gangster rap, except a celebration of I can kill, you know. Gangsta. We celebrate killing. We have women standing on the streets of Washington this past week taking their abortifacient pills, saying, Look at me. I'm something because I can kill. We say it's right to kill babies. We say it. It's a right and it's right. If your life is in some way, and I'm not talking about if your life is threatened by the, the, the pregnancy and the baby. At that point, there's often choices made between one life and another. But if it's just your convenience, your mental ability, your desire to finish your education and you go and abort your baby so that you can get on with your life? Well, when you do have children, ladies, and if you have done this and not repented, you're at odds with Christ. You're at odds with him. The same is true of those of us who say, you know, it's hard killing, or it's hard caring for older people. Let's let's abandon them. We all tacitly know when they go into hospice that they're gonna be medicated to death. We say, that's good. Or we say, ah, they don't need to be fed. Do we remember that King David when the Amalekite came and said Paul was dying, Saul, the king for David, was dying on the battlefield struck down, he was dying in his death throes, his agony of death he said to me, come here, help me just do me in so I don't have to struggle like this the Amalekite said, so I did it he was dying, I struck him a final blow that killed him, but David said who are you to murder in a nation that starves old people that tells The incapacitated, they're better off dead, and that we don't need to feed them. Death has become a a means of our glory. I get to go to college because, well, abortion. You know, I'm not bound by the care of my elderly grandparents because, well, it's best that they die. It's it's, this is fundamentally opposite, Jesus. And there is no question that as this week goes on and they see that Jesus is not coming to kill but to give life, people of Jerusalem start to wonder, do I really want a conquering king who gives life rather than one who kills the Romans? They want to kill her. You want to kill her. You vote for the man who's the most proficient at killing. We need to understand that Jesus loves life that Only the followers of Satan love death. Second thing that Jesus comes to do is to, in this great triumphs, to show the values, the glories that are God's. It's children, it's gentleness, and it's meekness and poverty. I think we would, be, we would be ignoring something quite obvious if we did not recognize that this starts the week, but the very next thing Jesus does, which I'm convinced is part of the turning of the tide against him, is he goes into the temple and he casts out the people who are there making money. And he says, no, it's not about making money. We will turn on the people who tell us that our love of money is wrong. We will. If they demand that we give up our money, we go, whoa, it's the economy, stupid. You've heard that in how many election cycles? We'll vote with our wallets. Jesus says, your wallet doesn't matter. The glory of God is not advanced by wealth. And he shows he means it by going in the next day and ripping apart the temple and all the money makers. The shopping mall of Jerusalem. This crowd of thousands ultimately stirs the whole city. In the aftermath of the raising of Lazarus, we know The Pharisees and the priests despaired of ever winning the people away from Christ. John tells us the crowd was huge because with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, were the people who came with him and raised him from the dead. And they continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, look, you see that we're not doing any good. The whole world has gone after him. Pharisees, kings of Jerusalem, the powerful men. They say, oh, we can't oppose him. The whole city has gone to him. That's how great this triumph was. But it reverses. It turns 180 degrees. And it does so because Jesus' triumph is not of the killer and the wealthy, but of the man who loves the poor the children who rides a donkey who comes in gentleness and the day is coming when he'll ride a war horse. it's coming the bible is very clear that this is not the last coming of jesus when he comes he'll be on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth which is the word of god And at that coming, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue. This is the day to get yourself right with the glory of God. This is the day to repent. To run from this crowd that kills him and to say, no, Jesus, I want your glory. This is the day. Repent. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Make him your Lord. What a great king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, which is so revealing of us and of Christ. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we may worship Jesus. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we may not seek worldly glory, but the glory of God. Pour out your glory in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.